Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. I remember a commercial years and years ago. It says, Look for the union label When you are buying a coat dress or gloves Remember somewhere pandemic has changed our lives in so many ways. When it comes to purchasing products made in the United States, the pandemic is what caused us to become more and more aware of the fact that things we use every single day aren't made here. For the last three years, supply chain issues have become a way of life. And for the woman you are about to meet, they are a reminder that it doesn't have to be that way. She is the president of Huff Industrial Marketing and the proud publisher of the Keep It Made USA blog. Check out her articles anytime, keepitmadeusa.com. Her name, Diana Huff. This is her story. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, as soon as you walked in the door, you said, I just want to tell you something. Everything I'm wearing is made in the USA. I came in with my overcoat, a florette, made with American wool in New York. Your jeans were specially made for you? uh, custom made by David Joseph, who does couture clothing and wedding dresses. He made these jeans using some of the last denim from one of the last denim mills in the United States. This is Clyde made in America with imported materials. And my boots, Monroe boots, made in U.S. imported material. Hanky pankies, made in the USA. Uh. So you are walking the walk and talking the talk. Yes. Your commitment to buying products made right here in the United States began way before the pandemic in 2015. Tell us what inspired your decision to become passionate about this. I have been in business for myself since 1998. I had gone out on my own because uh, I had been working corporate. I had my son in daycare full time, couldn't handle it. So when my former husband and I moved here from the West Coast to the East Coast, I had to quit my job anyway. So I said, ha, I'm going to go out on my own. So I actually had a whole other business. But in 2013, I made the decision to stop being a copywriter, and I wanted to move into working with manufacturers. I, and I had always worked with manufacturers. I come from a manufacturing background. And so I started Huff Industrial Marketing. And I said, well, the thing I always do when I need to learn something new, I read a bazillion books. So I started reading books, and my jaw dropped because that's when I learned what was happening to manufacturing. I didn't realize, and I don't think anyone does, that all of everything had been offshored. So I made the commitment in 2015. I was only going to buy Made in USA, not knowing what I was getting into. And, (laughs) of course, I've had to backtrack on that. But that's what started it all was if I'm going to work with manufacturers, I'm going to support what they're doing. What I have learned is that only 3% of clothing is made in the USA. Why aren't we doing a better job of making things in the USA? Uh, It's a number of Long story. Long story. But when you are an American manufacturer, 
You have to pay for workman's comp. You have to pay insurance. There are all these OSHA regulations. There are laws about minimum wage. There's everything. And you have to pay health insurance. Well, companies in other countries don't have to pay that. I always say the paying field isn't level. So if you as an American manufacturer have higher costs, you can't compete with stuff that's coming in that's been made for pennies on the dollar. Do you think that the supply chain disasters of the pandemic helped to enlighten customers about our dependence on foreign manufacturers? Absolutely. So I actually went to a small boutique, I forget which town it was in, but it was during the pandemic. Whenever I go in, I say, do you have anything made in the USA? It was a clothing boutique. And she looked at me and she kind of looked around secret and she said, I don't buy anything made in China anymore. (laughs) She whispered it to me (laughs) like, (laughs) exactly. And, you know, I have to say, I don't think that should be a political conversation. I think it should be a patriotic conversation. Well, and you played the union-made commercial, and it was from 1978. And all those people, men and women from across the spectrum, were singing this jingle about how the clothing, you were keeping them employed. Whenever I do a story about anything that's made here, I try to include a picture of the, if they have it, of the people that actually made the products because they're like us. They're us, and we keep them employed. We keep our jobs here. And I'm passionate about it because I come from blue-collar working class, and I know how important these jobs are. Well, you have said good jobs equal strong families, and strong families equal strong communities. When we buy products made in our own country, there is a ripple effect. Yes, exactly, because you keep the money here. So during the pandemic, my gym closed. It closed I mean, it went out of business. So I used to have to drive there. It was, you know, about a 20-minute drive from my house. Well, because I was no longer going there, now I wasn't going to that dry cleaner. I wasn't going to the little restaurant. I'm not frequenting those businesses anymore. So think about a manufacturing company or several that employ 50, 100, 200 people, and you take them out. I remember watching a video. It's like a magnet. It sucks out all the other businesses. And that's why you have towns that have been just devastated because they lost their manufacturing base. The decision to buy Made in the USA products quickly became such a big part of your life, both personally and professionally. Let's talk about Huff Industrial Marketing, where you work directly with industrial manufacturers. Tell us what you do. My team and I, were a very small boutique team. We make custom-built websites. I mean, we build them from scratch, and we do custom marketing programs built to generate leads for manufacturers. We work only with small manufacturers. And then we do follow-on marketing programs that can be content marketing, LinkedIn, Google Ads. Tell us about the manufacturers you work with and how you try to help them. Because I'm going to guess that in a business like yours and you're building somebody's website and it's all about how to market them, how to tell people about them, you must become very close to all of your clients. Yes. There's a big smile on your face. Yes. So, for example, I work with Brandon Acker, who's the CEO of Titan Abrasive. He makes blast rooms. So, <laughs> really? I, I had no clue what they what were. What is a blast room? Exactly. Uh, so, it's a big, humongous room, or it could be a smaller room. It could be a little bit bigger than your studio, where you go in and there's a blast machine where abrasive people think sand, but it's not sand. It's 
all this other stuff that comes out. So you could blast metal to prep it for painting or coating, or say the army would bring in their Jeeps and blast off all the paint because they have to repaint it to go to a different environment. So it's prepping the surface of metal. So you get to know a little bit about every one of these clients. Yes. You must be fun to have at a cocktail party. Yes. <laughs> if I can work with someone three, four, five years, I can almost sell their products. You are also on a mission to get more women into manufacturing. Yes. I put myself through school doing manual labor. I made sales for sailboats. I ironed. I cleaned houses. I did anything short of bad stuff. <laughs> But I drove a Volkswagen, this beat-up Volkswagen, and the head blew. It's a mechanism that goes on the little end on the engine. Well, I didn't have the money to have someone repair it for me. So I got a book, a Volkswagen book, and I drove to a, a friend's house, and he helped me drop the engine. I spent four days replacing the heads. I put the engine back in and drove my car for several years after that. And huh? that was because I knew how to read a book and how to use tools. How empowering was that for you? <laughs> I put the engine back in and I drove it around the block and I'm like, God, why does it sound funny? And not like clunk, 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 but something's not quite right. And I got back to the drive. I'm like, oh, I forgot a piece of the fan housing. So I couldn't drop it and put it back in. So I just threw the fan housing in the back seat and drove it around after that. <laughs> <laughs> Your blog, Keep It Made USA, is getting a whole lot of traction. Tell us about some of your most popular articles. So one of them, actually, Dean Wagner, who started Authentically American, he contracts with companies that make American-made clothing. I interviewed him, learned all about his company, how he got started. He was so nice, nicest guy, veteran from West Point, and he had been featured on Fox and Friends. And so I put a, when I did the screenshot for the blog post, I put that in there and it, the whole thing just explained. And then he's, he knows everybody. So that was like, I couldn't believe how many comments, impressions. It was amazing. So he's the one who talks a lot about how clothing is not made here anymore. He's very passionate about it. I also interviewed, it was Allegiance flag. They make U.S. flags here. and uh, I like the idea of buying an American flag that's made in the United States of America. Yes, exactly. There are several companies that make their flags here, but he sells direct to consumer. So he said, when I interviewed him, he said they did a lot of research and the bigger companies, they sell at Home Depot or, you know, the big stores. But you can go right to the website and order online. And the nice thing about their flag, and I have one, is it has these things that go on the pole. So it keeps the flag from wrapping. So when the wind blows, it just goes around the pole. Like, <laughs> and it doesn't wrap. You know, I have an American <laughs> flag on the front of my house and on the side of my house. And it's always going all the way around the pole. So I'm going to have to Allegiance find out. Allegiance flag. There you go. <laughs> Allegiance flag. You know, you've mentioned growing up in a manufacturing environment. Let's talk a little bit about where you come from, because I do believe that our childhood shapes and molds us. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and what life was like in your house. So I grew up in Alameda, California, which someone once described as a little island anchored off the coast of Oakland. So San Francisco Bay Area, grew up working class. My mother was a waitress most of the time. I'll use the polite term that it was a disadvantaged upbringing. <laughs> It was tough, multiple 
husbands. It was just a tough upbringing. Wow. It was a very tough upbringing. Brothers and sisters? I was raised as the oldest of four, but my mother had six children. So there were two ahead of me that I didn't know. When you grow up in a tough environment like that, did you seek out other adults who could be strong role models for no, you? No, books. Books. So I've mentioned a couple of times that I just go read a book. I've been reading. My first book was The Cat in the Hat. I remember going to the Carnegie Library in Alameda in first grade, getting my library card. And I read the entire children's shelf, I, you know, like in weeks. It's an escape, isn't it? It was a total escape. And, and it so also I, tells you that there's a larger world out there than Alameda, California. Yes. Yeah, so I read a lot of fairy tales, a lot of uh, books about young girls who learned that they were princesses, <laughs> you know, like The Little Princess. Remember that book? Sure. Laura Ingalls Wilder, I read her repeatedly mm. because her family was so strong and had weathered so many setbacks. But I always read books either to learn something or to escape. I was always reading books. Where did you go to college, and what was that like? I went to California State University, Hayward. Education was not stressed in my household. In fact, I had to battle for a long time. My mother always said, you don't need an education. You should marry a rich man. Um, <laughs> Which works out sometimes and then not at all sometimes. It's a good gig if you can get it. Right. <laughs> but I didn't have great SAT scores. And so I wasn't actually going to go to college. And the guidance counselor at high school, I had to go into her office. I got called down and she said, you know, I noticed you aren't registered anywhere. And I explained why. And she said, oh, but there are programs for people like you. So she contacted Cal State Hayward and helped me with the admissions process. I got admitted under what's called the EOP, the Educational Opportunity Program. It was created for disadvantaged youth. I tried to research this online before I came here. I was reading Condoleezza Rice's book. It was Extraordinary Parents, Ordinary Life, or what, something like that. But her parents, who are amazing. And so her father actually created the Educational Opportunity Program for his community. And it's been picked up by many universities. It's been part of the CSU system for over 50 years. And so that's how I entered the college, because I didn't have SAT scores. I didn't have what And you took. didn't have the means to pay for it either. And I didn't have the means to pay for it. So what was your major? And what was college like for you? So I went in as a nursing major. And by the third quarter, I had to quit because we had to dissect a fetal pig. And I thought I was going to be sick. <laughs> And my grades were terrible, and I had actually you started... said nursing is not for me. <laughs> and I had actually started taking English classes to raise my grades, my GPA, because I was like, well, how hard can it be to read a book and talk about it? <laughs> so. And so that's, I started taking more English classes, and then I switched from nursing to business. I completely flunked economics, like F, F, F. <laughs> So. Doesn't get lower than that. <laughs> no. And one of the professors who was a short story writer, actually a well-known, nationally known short story writer, he called me into the hall one day and said, how come you're not an English major? I was like, because I want to make money. And, and he said, you know, you're really good. And I said, I am. And he said, yes. And did you know there are companies that hire people like you? Who can write. Who can write. You and me both. I'm an English major <laughs> as well. And that's how I got started in broadcasting, because I could write. But what I wanted to follow up on in that story is, where would you be if that professor 
hadn't taken you out into the hallway and said, you write really well? I don't know. He was the second person who told me I could write well. My first one was in high school. So high school, senior English class, she was this awesome, you know, one of those old ladies, old school, old ladies, you know, big bosoms and big, you know, (laughs) hips. And every Friday we had to write an essay in class and it was timed. She'd give you an idea. And then we had to write about it. And so I would be scribbling furiously. And then I would remember seeing other people sitting there like panic, like deer in the headlights, like they could not handle it. And I, my essays would come back A, A minus, A, and you are a delightful writer. And, you know, and I just like, well, this is fun. You know, especially <laughs> when you're going through a hard time in your life, which you've described to me pretty clearly, having a teacher like that, having a professor, someone who points out the things that make you great, the things that are gifts and skills and talents is life changing. Why do you work as hard as you do? What motivates you to work as hard as you do? Oh, you know, I had a a guy who works a corporate job. He asked me that. He said, your office is 10 steps from your bedroom. What even gets you out of bed every morning? Because I have goals, because I like what I do because I want to change my small part of the world, because I want to make a difference. How did motherhood change you? What a smile on your face. When I got pregnant, because of everything that had happened to me growing up, I was really not sure I wanted to have a child because I was really worried that I would pass on all that gross stuff. I was really scared. And so when I went in for my first appointment and the OBGYN came in and she said, oh, congratulations. I burst into tears and oh no, she said, oh no, what's wrong? And I told her my whole story and I said, I'm really scared to have this child. I am terrified. And she said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to cry now. She said, I'm going to tell you two things. One, and I told, and I also explained to her that I didn't like children. And so (laughs) she said, I'm going to tell you two things. Little (laughs) detail. She said, you only have to love your own children. You don't have to love anybody else's. And she said, and two, motherhood will transform you. She said, you will be a totally different person. And I remember holding him and looking at him and said, I am going to raise you in exactly the opposite way of how I was raised. And you're going to have everything I didn't have. And I don't mean all the added on stuff, all the toy, you know. The love part. It was the love part. He would never, ever know what it meant to not have a loving parent, ever. Adversity is a great teacher, Diana. What have you learned by surviving some of these tough times, particularly in your childhood, and now as you look back as an adult? What have you learned? To keep fighting and to never, ever doubt yourself. And that if you can survive a terrible horrible childhood, or if you can survive, even like my colleague, her four-year-old son was diagnosed with leukemia. That was a two-year battle. Whatever your adversity is, if you can survive it, you can survive anything. Next couple questions we ask everybody who sits where you are. So you're in the hot seat right now. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Books. (laughs) You read about it. And you know, this from the woman who took an engine (laughs) apart, put it back together again. I'm so impressed with that. Keep talking. Oh, so, you know, um, I watched a documentary recently about Benjamin Franklin. Did you know he taught himself to swim reading a pamphlet? You know, again, reading (laughs) is everything. So, yeah, so if I have any kind of challenge, I just go find books and then create a plan. 
What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given, and can you pass that along? Yes, it was in a book called The Big Leap by Guy Hendricks. Never give up your freedom for the illusion of security because you'll have a hard time ever getting it back. It's been such a pleasure to have you here today, Diana Huff. Final question. At this moment, in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you? Using my intuition. So, you know, I had a reading a session with the woman that you had on your show, Kim Gedney. She said, you are very intuitively strong. She said, yes, you absolutely can trust your intuition, but you absolutely must use it. So it's one thing to trust it. It's another thing to actually put those words into action. Right? Yes, yes. What's next? Very soon, I'm going to be entering my sixth decade, and I am going to be doing the things that I've always wanted to do that I put on hold. And I actually, one of the things that I just did was I have a new German Shepherd puppy. His name is Rocky. He's three months old. I just got him a month ago. It's something I've always wanted to do my whole life. I feel like I have a toddler. I feel like I fall in bed eight o'clock at night exhausted. I am the happiest I've been in a very long time. He is amazing. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. Best of luck with the puppy and, of course, with your business, Huff Industrial Marketing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Diana Huff for sharing her inspiring story with us. She's got two websites. The first one, HuffIndustrialMarketing.com. And don't forget to check out her blog, KeepItMadeUSA.com. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, will you please let me know? Just go to my website, CandyOterry.com. That's Candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. And please give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends and family about the show. Leave a review if you would be so kind. I promise to have a new and inspiring story for you to listen to next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap toward success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.